This Day in Maine is made possible by listeners and by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation. Offering crawl space repairs and waterproofing, easternbasements.com. From Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org, I'm Patty White with the news on this day in Maine, Monday, February 12, 2024. A Superior Court justice has ruled against Maine's Attorney General and others in a case seeking to establish public access rights to the intertidal zone on Maine beaches. Currently, beachfront property owners' rights extend to the low tide line. State Attorney General Aaron Fry asked the court to grant the public unfettered rights to walk along the intertidal zone on Maine beaches. Another motion from members of the public asked the court to modernize allowable uses of the intertidal zone, which current law lists as fishing, fouling, and navigation. Attorney Benjamin Ford, who represents the plaintiffs, says he's not surprised by the decision and will appeal to the Supreme Judicial Court. The longer a law stays on the books, the harder it is to, to change course. We are trying to overrule a decision from 1989, which is 30 years ago, and that's not always easy. Ford says Maine and Massachusetts are the only two states in which the intertidal zone is not considered public land. Maine U.S. Senators Susan Collins and Angus King continue to push for a $95 billion spending bill that would provide aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. As Steve Missler reports, the package advanced on Sunday despite efforts by Republicans and former President Donald Trump to block it. Collins was one of 16 Republicans who voted with the Democratic majority to move the bill forward, and she pushed back against what she called misunderstandings and misrepresentations from its opponents. Among them is an assertion that the aid package will increase U.S. troop deployments to Europe and into battle in Ukraine, which Collins says is untrue. The Ukrainians are the ones who are doing the fighting and taking the casualties. No American soldiers are dying on the Ukrainian battlefield. Collins added that the best way to prevent a larger war in Europe that could draw in U.S. forces is to back Ukraine and deter further aggression by Russia. King has made a similar argument, but it's running up against opposition stirred by Trump and his loyalists in Congress. Trump has shown admiration for Russian President Vladimir Putin, and last week he suggested that Russia could do whatever it wants with America's NATO allies if they don't provide sufficient funding for the alliance. The proposal, which also includes aid to Israel and humanitarian assistance to Gaza, requires additional votes in the Senate, and its fate in the GOP-controlled House is uncertain. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Steve Missler. Significant delays in the federal financial aid process have led to the University of New England in Biddeford to give prospective students more time to submit an enrollment deposit. High schoolers typically have until May 1st to get the deposit to UNE to keep a spot in the school's upcoming academic class. But UNE's Scott Steinberg says significant delays with the federal FAFSA process this year mean that the college won't be able to get financial aid packages to students until much later in the spring. Typically, UNE would be able to get a financial aid package to a new student in January or February. If we don't get the data from the U.S. Department of Education until March, we're more likely looking at getting this to them in April. Steinberg says the school decided to give students until June 1st to submit their enrollment deposit. As of February 2nd, about 3,600 high school seniors in Maine had submitted a FAFSA form, a decline of more than 40 percent compared to last year. 
State housing officials estimate that Maine needs about 84,000 new homes by the end of the decade to meet current and future demand. Developers say that goal is daunting because the process is increasingly complex, slow and expensive. And without the added supply, advocates fear the demand for housing will further drive rents beyond the reach of many Mainers. Nicola Grisco has been following the housing sector in Maine and spoke to Robbie Feinberg about this issue. So to illustrate the kinds of affordable housing projects that are getting built, you recently visited a site in Portland with 45 apartments that opened last June. Where did you visit? Yeah, so it's called Phoenix Flats, and the apartments are primarily reserved for older people and people with disabilities. And one of the residents, Saab Rosenblatt, greeted me at the door of her one-bedroom apartment dressed from head to toe in pink. So come on in. And this is the living room, which is Unicornville. You see the big unicorn right here on the table. Each room had its own theme. She calls the kitchen the rainbow room. In the bathroom, there are strawberry decals on the walls, on the vanity, on the shower curtain. And then her bedroom. Last but not least, Barbie room. Rosenblatt had some of these decorations before moving here, but she kept most of them packed away in boxes. Because I really didn't have a place to call home. I was always staying places, never felt comfortable. Rosenblatt says she's lived in six different places since moving to Maine six years ago. She has a disability and says that's often made it more difficult over the years to juggle multiple jobs and maintain stable housing. She says she was bullied at her last apartment in Old Orchard Beach and worked with a local housing authority to find a new place. Eventually, she made the top of the waiting list for Phoenix Flats. All of the apartments are restricted to households making anywhere from $41,000 to $57,000. And at least 13 units are set aside for those who have been staying at the Portland Homeless Shelter for six months or longer. There were times where it was really exciting. There were times I was like, this is never going to happen. Weston Arthur Hurd says he became homeless in New Orleans after a recent hurricane and eventually made his way to Portland, where he says he bounced around to three different shelters before finally landing an apartment at Phoenix Flats. And you're going to be one of the first people in the building. I was like, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We try to create as few barriers to housing as we possibly can for people and to get them into housing, really stable housing, so that they can start to grow and really succeed. Brian Kilgallen managed the development of Phoenix Flats for the nonprofit Community Housing of Maine. And he says construction took nearly twice as long as originally expected, partly due to pandemic-related supply chain and labor challenges. And he acknowledged that construction setbacks meant that Heard and others waited longer to leave the homeless shelter. We can go faster, and we should, because we are in a hole, and we need to start building our way out of it. In the case of Phoenix Flats, not only did construction take twice as long, the project also cost $16 million and required more than a dozen financing sources. And the challenge for developers is that each apartment costs about $324,000 to build. And that's not easy to make a return because the monthly rent for these apartments is capped. And so how do developers pay for these projects? Well, at Phoenix Flats, more than half of the funds came from federal and state tax credit programs. The federal low-income housing tax credit is the primary way that affordable housing is financed today in the United States. And 
Really simply put, how it works is that Maine Housing allocates tax credits to approved developers. And then developers sell these tax credits to private investors and receive funds in return that are used to pay for the project. So Phoenix Flats received about $6 million through the federal program and nearly $3 million through a state tax credit program that's very similar. In addition, there are loans and subsidies from Maine Housing and grants from the city of Portland, among others. There were also a few indirect sources that helped keep the cost down. The land itself was free through donations from the city of Portland and a private landowner. And there's also commercial space on the first floor of the building, which is pretty unique. A restaurant is expected to take over that space, and when they do, they'll pay rent to community housing in Maine. And we keep using the phrase affordable housing here, but what exactly does that mean? So it's housing where the occupant is paying no more than 30 percent of their income on rent. And the federal government sets specific income thresholds known as the area median income and then maximum rent levels to ensure that's the case. So to put that into perspective for a two-person household earning about $47,000 a year in Portland, rent for a one-bedroom apartment at Phoenix Flats can't exceed about $1,100 a month. And for a two-person household that makes just under $57,000 a year in Portland, maximum monthly rent for that same one-bedroom apartment would be about $1,300. And as we said at the top, state housing officials estimate that Maine needs at least 84,000 new homes by the end of the decade. Are we anywhere closer to meeting that goal? Well, last year, Maine created nearly 700 new units of affordable housing, and that's well above the 150 units that Maine created back in 2022. But I think what the story behind Phoenix Flats illustrates is that the cost of constructing these new buildings and the complexity of securing enough funds to subsidize these projects are essentially creating the conditions where we're really slowly chipping away at our housing goals a few dozen apartments at a time. And unfortunately, the Phoenix Flat story is not particularly unique. I spoke to a few developers for this story and looked at several affordable housing projects that have been recently completed or are set to open later this year in Maine's largest cities. And the price tags and the number of funding sources for these projects are similar. And each of them will produce about two to three dozen new apartments. All of these projects take about three to four years and about $20 million each to complete. And, you know, data from Maine Housing shows there's several hundred more units under construction now. That will help. But state officials say that we really need to be doubling the number of new homes that we're building to meet our production goals by the end of the decade. And as the story behind Phoenix Flats shows, that's not going to be easy. And that's Maine Public's Nicola Grisco, who spoke to Robbie Feinberg. Nicole has done more reporting on the story behind Phoenix Flats and what it takes to make affordable projects like these a reality. You can find the full story at mainepublic.org. Mainers wagered around $3.5 million on this year's Super Bowl through online sports betting platforms. It's the first Super Bowl since online sports betting in Maine launched this past November. Nick Song has more. According to early reports from the Maine Gambling Control Unit, 
online sportsbooks in Maine paid out about $2.5 million, with the House taking in around a million dollars in revenue. From that, the state of Maine collected about 110000 in state taxes. The control unit's executive director, Milt Champion, says he's pleased with how the event went and with how online sports betting has been working in Maine. You know, having a soft opening in November, I think that attributed to not having receiving any complaints, and uh, everybody, I guess, had a really good time with it. Yeah, it's been quiet, and that's a good thing. Wagers made 10 days prior to the Super Bowl are included in the betting totals. Maine currently offers two online sportsbook platforms, DraftKings and Caesars Sportsbook. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Nick Song. And on Sunday afternoon, as the country settled in to watch the Super Bowl, one group of sports fans in Portland was tuned into a different championship game taking place an ocean away. The final soccer match of the African Cup of Nations featured a showdown between Ivory Coast and Nigeria and gave Maine's small but growing Nigerian community a chance to come together around a beloved sport and familiar food. Ari Snyder was there. It's Super Bowl Sunday, but you wouldn't know it from the scene at this sports bar in Portland's East Bayside neighborhood. A green and white Nigerian flag flutters outside. Patrons dig into spiced jollof rice and West African barbecue, and all eyes are on Nigeria's men's national soccer team, which is squaring off against the Ivory Coast in the final match of this continent-wide tournament. Ayo Oyinlade, an IT worker from Scarborough, says he moved to Maine nine years ago, and it took him months to meet another Nigerian. Being here with a couple dozen countrymen today, he says, is a big deal, and evidence of the community's growth. Being able to see Nigerians, see the Nigerian flag flowing, see Nigerians around me, it's, it's so beautiful to be able to witness that growth. Uzochi Achumba arrived in Portland last year for a master's program at the Rue Institute. She says today is a welcome slice of home. Oh my God, it feels so good. I feel like I'm in Nigeria again. I'm watching the match with everybody. Let's go, attack, let's go, let's go. Meanwhile, Temitope Omokinde, a civil engineering consultant, is glued to the screen. The match is tied 0-0 in the first half, but he's worried. To be frank and sincere, at the moment, I think the Ivory Coast, they are doing, they are doing better than us. But a moment later, on a corner kick, Nigeria's captain knocks a header past the Ivory Coast goalkeeper. The bar erupts in a joyous frenzy. Yeah. That is spirit. Yeah, we scored. 1-0. Match day means brisk business for young Francis, the chef and co-owner of the Nigerian barbecue pop-up Ogasuya, who was brought in by Nigerians in Maine, an informal community group that organized the watch party. So then we have um, the beef kebab, the shrimp kebab. We have some uh, jollof rice, some fried rice. Uh, we have some plantain. And a special, goat meat and pepper stew. It's good for the cold, you know. <laughs> Francis has lived in Maine for about five years and has been running Ogasuya for about three. Though he's too busy to watch the match, he says it's a pleasure to be grilling for the community. In the second half, though, things begin to slip away from Nigeria. Ivory Coast scores once to draw even and again to take the lead. They hold on to win two to one. And it's over! And we have a new champion, Ivory Coast! It's a disappointing ending for many at the bar, but Ayo Oyinlade says at least it was a good match and a chance to see friends. You know, you get to lose, you get to win, so that is life. It was still nice to see my peoples around, yeah, no doubt. He says he planned to stick around for a little longer, then maybe head home to watch the Super Bowl. 
For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Ari Snyder. And that's today's Maine News. For more stories, visit mainepublic.org. Coming up on Maine Calling at 11 tomorrow morning, hospice care. I'm Patty White. Thanks for listening.